What are the meaningful touch points where we can have satisfied learners, where we can have learners that want to stay in the game, and we can have learners that are motivating to other learners? So if you get that down even to the math class, what can we do in math class that are touch points? There are a lot of things. It's the tasks that we choose. It's the norms that we have. So I work with today. We speak with Thomasini Ala Adams uh, from the University of Florida. Go Gators! Uh, Thomasini is a mathematics teacher, educator, researcher with numerous accolades for teaching and the work she does with pre-service teachers. We speak with Thomasenia today about how we can use students' cultural capital to empower learning, why promoting student voice is so important in math class, and why increasing the number of meaningful touch points in math class helps amplify that student voice. Well, John, are you ready to dive in? Let's do this one. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are from MakeMathMoments.com, and we are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of math moment makers worldwide who want to build and deliver problem-based math lessons that spark curiosity, fuel sense-making, and ignite your teacher moves. John, I'm really excited to bring Thomasinia on the Mm -hmm. podcast. We've been waiting a while for this one to come out. And it was great having a chat with her here today. Uh, I can't wait to dive in with everyone. You're right. And we are honored to have her here with us. So, uh, hey, let's not waste any time today. Let's dive right in. Hey there, Thomasinia. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We are so excited to have you on the show today. How are you doing? In like COVID time, but also like back to school time. I'm great. I had a friend to say to me yesterday was Monday and today is second Monday. So (laughs) I'm doing good on the second Monday. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, we just came off of a long weekend here in Canada as we're recording this and we are just rolling into this week. We're really curious. We want to get to know you a little bit more. Tell us a little about yourself and bring our math moment makers up to date. What's your role in education? And actually, where are you coming to us from today? I am coming to you from Gainesville, Florida, home of the Florida Gators. Yeah, at the University of Florida. I currently am a professor of mathematics education and associate dean for research in the College of Education. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Even though I am a Canadian, I've always had almost like a crush on the Florida basketball team. You know, like it was just always my team, oh. especially when I was younger. But mm-hmm. go Gators. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Sidney, could you maybe dive a little bit deeper in for us? We were always interested in educators and how they got into education and like, where did that come from? I wouldn't mind if you kind of fill us in a little bit of backstory of what led you into that role and Give us a little bit of kind of lead up to that. Wow, that is <laughs> so interesting because it takes me back to being a little girl. I was born on a chicken farm and to Pickens and Tenny Ruth Lott. I'm the youngest of eight. 
So I had a lot of people telling me what to do all the time. Right. So it was like <laughs> having two parents and then seven other people pushing me around. <laughs> right. And so being the youngest of eight, though, had its advantages because by the time I sort of knew myself, I was like an only child because everyone else was so old and were married off and had kids of their own. And so here I was having my parents to myself. And that gave them an opportunity to talk to me a lot. And my mother, who only had an eighth grade education until she was about 35 years old, always spoke to me about the power of education. And she would often say, I don't have it, but that doesn't mean that you have to be the same way. Both my parents are deceased now. My father died at the age of 81 as an illiterate adult. But he was always saying, put something in your head, because if you put something in your head, no one can take that from you. So in their own ways, they taught me about the power of education. Now, some of this is is self-reflection. Like at the time, I didn't see that as that's what they were doing. It's like looking back now, I can say, oh, that's what they were trying to do. That's the messaging they were trying to say, but I just didn't see it as a kid growing up. It was my parents, we don't have what other people have. We can't go where other people can go. We can't wear what other people can wear. But they still were doing what was in their power to do to show me that I could be better. So obviously, education was something that that value that was instilled in you. And how did that flow into your current role? Like, So, for example, my mom was a single mom for my early years before she met my stepfather, and she was a big advocate for education as well. She had a high school education, and and at that time, at her age group, I suppose, there was many jobs out there, and she was able to get a good-paying job, and, and she enjoyed her job. But it was something that she really instilled into my sister and I, but I guess... My wonder is what then sort of maybe nudged you towards not only getting an education and going through that process, but then to also, in the end, want to be an educator and then now actually working with our pre-service educators. So it was a long journey and it was full of mountains and roadblocks. I'll tell you, I grew up in Saluda, South Carolina, and It's an interesting place, or it was when I was a young kid, and I'm looking at it now, and it's still very interesting. But there were three things that people did in Saluda. You worked on a chicken farm, which is what my parents did. That's why we lived on a chicken farm, because that's where they worked at the time. You worked in the peach industry, which I grew up with my parents, my brothers, and my sisters in the summer, taking advantage of the fact that it was peach season and going out into the fields and picking the peaches and harvesting the peaches. Or you worked in what we used to call shirt factories. Now, everything was called a shirt factory, even if they made tablecloths. We just called them all shirt factories. (laughs) It's like everything is Clorox. It doesn't matter what kind of bleach it is. (laughs) It's just Clorox. And and so, so, yeah, that was the expectation. So being in high school, just school in general wasn't a fun place for me. Elementary school was for every kid. It should be awesome. It was awesome. But by the time I got to middle school, 
I was bullied a lot. And, you know, that was at a time, I'm 55 years old now, and that was at a time where people didn't talk about bullying in the way we're talking about it now. If there was a fight at school, there was just a fight at school. Like, that was it. And that was like kids being kids. That's right. And so I was bullied because I was skinny. I was bullied because I had big eyes. I was bullied because I had long hair. I was bullied because I wore bobos because that's what my parents could afford to buy for me in my clothes. I was bullied because I wore clothes that my mother made. So if it didn't come out of the Sears Roebuck catalog, then she made it. And so middle school was horrible. And I never told anyone because, again, that wasn't what kids did. You didn't run and tell because that only made the bullying worse. And so I know that between middle school and high school, it was let me shut down, be invisible. Maybe the bullies won't see me. And so by the time I got to high school, it was just stay quiet, stay to yourself and try to hide from the bad people. And I spent a lot of high school time doing that. And I remember being in a geometry class and not feeling like I needed to be there or belonged to be there or anything. And I said to the teacher one day, I didn't do the homework. I didn't know how to do the homework. And that was kind of like a bold thing for me to do, to step up and say something, because it was easy to just, you know, hide. And the class starts and she calls me to the board. Like that was the first thing she did when she was ready to do the homework. Thomas in a lot, come to the board, do problem number so-and-so. And I thought, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to be bullied anymore. I'm not going to be the one that's picked on anymore. How can I get out of this? And I started screaming. Like in class, I just started screaming. I had a meltdown, total meltdown. I fell to the floor and I just screamed. And I remember the kids scattering and the teachers like, go to the office, get the principal. So the principal comes in. He doesn't know what to do. They call the guidance counselor and she didn't know what to do. So uh, like three adults just picked me up off the floor and took me to the front office where I proceeded to keep screaming. And they didn't even call my parents about this episode. But what they did is not make me go back to math class. So I spent the rest of that school year when my friends and other students went to math class, I went to study hall. And when I got to study hall, there were other kids in study hall. Like we spent the entire, like almost the entire school year in study hall. And kids were there because some of them had gotten into trouble and some of them would not pay attention in class. So the teacher would just send them to study hall. And I was there because I decided that I didn't like mathematics and I wasn't going to have anything to do with it. At the time, that's what I thought. When I'm looking back at it now, I know it was because I did not know what else to do with myself as a teenager who was hurting and in need and needed someone to listen, but I didn't even know what to say. And so that's what I did. And actually, the rest of high school, I pretty much did nothing. But I knew that I was going to, I won't even say graduate, I'll say get out. I knew I was going to get out because everybody got out. And if you got out, you just went to get one of those jobs that I spoke about. And so I get out of high school and my first job is in a shirt factory. But this particular shirt factory made blue jeans. 
this was a time where people were wearing the button-down blue jeans. So I was the tell the buttonhole girl where to put the buttons. So I sat at a table. I had a stick that had five dots on it. I had a white chalk pencil. And my job was to grab a pair of blue jeans, put the stick next to the place where the buttons were going to go, and put the white dots at the place where the black dots were on the stick. And when I did that five times, I had made 50 dots. And I would bundle up those pair of jeans and put them in a bin. And I did that for 10 hours a day. I also worked in a peach house during the summer. I was one of the girls that sat on a stool. And when the people would go out and pick the peaches, they would dump them on a conveyor belt. And our job was to reach in and grab the rotten peaches and drop them down the chute. So across those two jobs is how I spent that first summer, most of that first summer. So one day I'm working, I'm actually in the blue jean factory now working. And by this time, my mother had gotten a job there. And I think something dawned on her that she felt like, wait a minute, I've been telling this kid she could do something better. And now she's in this factory with me. And so my mom says to me one day, you need to get out of here. And it's like, well, what else am I going to do? Like, I just didn't have a clue of what I was going to do. But she's like, you need to get out of here. So that day, that very day, I went home and I really thought about what my mother said and I wanted to be obedient. And I thought, you know what? This is what I'll do. I'll pretend like I'm trying to get out to satisfy her. And then maybe she'll stop bullying me and leave me alone. And so I got the little phone book and turned to the yellow pages. Gen Z know nothing about yellow pages, yeah, no, but that's, <laughs> that's all we had. I turned to the yellow pages and I went to the phone and we had a shared line. So I had to keep picking up to make sure the other neighbors were not on the phone. And I flipped through the yellow pages and I saw in the back, South Carolina Student Loan Corporation. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll call them and they can help me find some money and maybe I can go to college. I just kind of told myself this. And so I called the number and the young man, I said, this is Thomas in a lot. And my mother said I should try to get out of Saluda. I mean, that's what I said to him because I didn't know what else to say. <laughs> Can you help? <laughs> yes. And he said to me, what college do you want to go to? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, what did you score on the SAT? I said, what's the SAT? Like, I didn't even know what the SAT was. I'd never spoken to a counselor at school. I wasn't one of the kids who was to go to college, see? So he said, call me back. When you know what college you're going to, you've taken the SAT. Well, I was in a pickle then. So I did the only strategy that I knew at work, because it worked when I was in high school, is I started crying. Like, I just had a meltdown with this man on the phone. And so he waited for me to finish. And he said, listen, it's not my job to help you get into college, but it sounds like you really need that. I want you to do this. And he gave me all the steps I needed to register for the SAT, where to take it, what to do. I followed his directions. He told me I needed to pick a school to apply to. I said, what's the closest one to Saluda? And 
he said South Carolina State College. It was like 60 miles away. Like, let's do that one because I'm thinking I'm not going to get in. If I get in, I'll probably flunk out and I could get a ride home. And I did what he said. I took the SAT like a week later. A couple of weeks later, I got a response from the school and they said they were letting me in. I'm like, this can't be happening. And I told my parents and they took me to college and dropped me off. And so eventually, yeah, eventually, you know, I'm leaving out some points, but eventually they took me to college and dropped me off. Now, when they dropped me off, here I was again without a clue of where I was, what I was supposed to be doing. And so I remember the first day of being there, watching my roommate's parents like unload her boxes. And she had like hangers and she was hanging her clothes in the closet. I'm looking at my suitcase like nobody told me that I needed to bring hangers. So I had no clothes hangers and she had laundry detergent and her health and beauty aids. And I'm like, no one told me I needed to bring that stuff. I had nothing. All I had was the paperwork I had gotten from the orientation and I had a meal card. So for the next three weeks, I sat in the room and I would go to the dining hall and eat the meals and I come back to the room. And she came in one day and she said, you know what? I didn't even know why you showed up to college. Like you are depressing me. And if you don't do something, I'm going to ask for a new roommate. Oh, wow. And I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And she said to me, well, there's a man in Nance Hall. I hear he's helping people. Why don't you go see him? And so I looked through the orientation papers. I got the college map. I found Nance Hall and I went to see him. She said, his name is Willie Briggs. So I go see this man. I knock on the door and I say, hi, I'm Thomasina Adams. Can you help me? And he says, I am so sick and tired of people coming here saying, can I help them? Tell them what to do. And he's like, give me the papers that are in your hands. I gave him the papers that I had from orientation. And I saw him marking things and he was checking stuff. And he said, I tell you what, young lady, if you don't do what I say, don't you ever come back to my office. And so I said, yes, sir. And by this time I'm shaking. And he says, now you take this over there to the registrar's office and you tell them you're a math major. <laughs> and that's how I became a math major. Wow. <laughs> I didn't yeah, realize. The subject that you were that, like, I'm never doing this again. It's like, now you're a math major. Yes. I didn't realize that I was going to the mathematics department, that he was a math professor. Like, I didn't even notice that. And I became a math major. And his class was the first class that I took. And I'm thinking, this dude doesn't know that I'm poor. He doesn't know that my parents are illiterate. He doesn't know that I just came out of working in a shirt factory and a peach house. And he doesn't know that I hated math and I wasn't good at anything in high school. And I guess what I better do is pretend like I like math and know math and do what he said, because he's like the only friend I have. And that's what I did. And I graduated with my mathematics degree. Right. It's almost like I just had this image of this guy just said, you're going to go and become a math major. And it was almost like this permission to you is like, it's okay to like math or to not have those same feelings towards school that you had in your early years. It's like almost like this fresh start has just happened. And this man has just given you permission to go ahead and do that. 
you know, your story is a very inspiring story. You showed so much bravery, I think, numerous times to start fresh, change this course of action. And, and I think it's very inspiring to sh- see that determination on well, your yeah, you part. Know, John, like the part two that like really sticks mm-hmm. out to me as well, which is kind of like a beautiful kind of ending and sort of leaves you with this idea in your mind that this person, this professor basically didn't care who you were. He knew that math was for everyone. And that's not really the story that a lot of people have been told or experienced through their own learning experiences. And John and I usually ask people to share a memorable math moment from their past, but I think we may have just heard your memorable moment, which really is so it would be so easy at any point along that journey to just say, absolutely not. I am not going to go through with this and I'm not going to put myself out there because it was hard and you had these rough moments during your own educational experience. And I'm wondering like how obviously that moment influenced where you are now in the fact that you followed through and that you had that bravery, that determination that John had mentioned. But how else does that moment and that story, the way it happened, like how does it influence your work now and how you do things and how you help others to love education and math in particular? What do you think, how does that transform or sort of like help you to be the person you are today and the advocate you are for math education? Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Well, exactly right. He just saw a living, breathing being and said, you can do mathematics without having my history. And I'll tell you, I took a humanities course too in college. And one of the things that we had to do was write our personal history. And I wanted to put this story on paper for that course. So I wanted also to have evidence. So I decided to go back to my high school, get my high school record and attach it to my paper as evidence. And when I went back to high school to go to the office to get my papers, I saw one of the previous teachers and she stopped me and said, where have you been? I haven't seen you around. And I said, well, I'm not in Saluda anymore. I'm in college. And she said to me, I didn't know you had that in you. Oh, wow. Mm, wow. And so the whole story of this experience 
has taught me not to make assumptions about students. That's the first thing, not to make assumptions. If someone doesn't know or will articulate that they don't know mathematics or don't like mathematics, there's probably a story behind that. And when kids don't come to school and they don't have their homework done or they don't have support to do projects, there's a story behind that because I didn't have any lack of love in my family. I had lots of people loving me, but I didn't have anyone that had mathematical capital that could help me appreciate mathematics and engage in mathematics. So we can't make assumptions when we see people exhibit deficiencies and just assume, well, it's because no one cares or they don't have any resources. There's a story behind what people show us in their lives. And the other thing that I think that has followed me to where I am now as a mathematics educator is appreciating the strengths that someone shows, whatever those strengths are. I say to teachers all the time, if you have a child that is having difficulty with basic operations, like maybe they can't add well, or third, fourth grade, they don't know their multiplication tables, then they certainly still can be successful in geometry. Like you don't need to know addition to understand what a square is or a rectangle or a triangle or how rhombi relate to squares. So it's not as if one piece of mathematics where you're deficient, it shouldn't close the door on everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, I think those are huge learnings. I think that we can all apply to all of our teaching for sure. Like do not make assumptions about students, appreciate strengths. I'll admit that when I first started teaching, I was very narrow focused. I was the typical, I taught the way I was taught in school and I was all math all the time, all business. And as a high school teacher, and and I fully admit for like eight years of my career, I didn't make those two things a priority that you just said that were a priority for you. Like I was the guy that would stop a kid at the door going, you're late. You're late for the third time, not even ask the reason why and mark it down and say like, you now you have detention. And it was because I don't even know why, but I guess my thinking was that, oh, rules are important. Those basic things that they probably already know, except that <laughs> I was just holding it over their head. And it wasn't until, you know, a few years later where I started to make that shift of totally listening to kids and understanding where they're coming from, what's their story. I think I've made that shift and it's totally changed the classroom dynamic in my class and say my love for teaching that kind of sparked up again, just because it became about kids instead of math. And that was kind of my learning journey. I'm still kind of on that journey, but I wouldn't mind venturing into some of the work that you've been doing on student and supporting student voice. Kyle and I both watched your webinar on supporting student voice in the math classroom, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. One quote that really resonated with us, you've used actually the word capital here already tonight, but one quote you said was that student voice was the cultural capital that students bring with them to the classroom. Can you share a little bit more about what that perspective on student voice is? And we'd love to learn a little bit more about that phrase. Yes. So the cultural capital is what makes me who I am. It's everything about my life makes me who I am, from the music I listen to, if and how I choose to worship, or how I choose to recreate, or family traditions, and the things that are important, the history of my ethnicity, my race, and how I appreciate my gender. 
all of these things, how I identify myself and how I choose to relate to others. So all of those things are part of the cultural capital that each of us have. Each of us have experiences that have shaped who we are and how we engage with each other. And so often we ignore the cultural capital that students bring to the classroom and we try to force them into the box of whatever is in the mathematics text, like that's all that there is. And that's just not true. I remember being a little girl and watching my dad, who again was illiterate, but he was a functional illiterate adult, very productive. I remember seeing him do so many things now when I look back that were so mathematical from how he fixed cars to how he decided to plant the garden and what he needed to buy, how much fertilizer and what he had to mix it with to get the right consistency and mixture and how he mixed cement. You're like, all of those things are cultural capital. And as a student of mathematics, if I had had the opportunity to put my examples in front of the classroom, not just all I can do is look at what's in the book, but I have examples of my own. I have mathematical experiences of my own that also deserve to have space in the classroom. But if we don't take the time to figure out who students are and what they we lose out on the richness of what students can bring to the classroom and to the mathematics experience. It's so interesting because, well, a couple things. First off, you know, I have this vision of you as a student in the classroom and you're discussing how important student voice is and bringing that cultural capital to life. And it's almost like you had the exact opposite experience where you were in the classroom because you wanted to sort of like be anonymous and hopefully no one would notice you were there, you know, with the bullying and with maybe not feeling comfortable with the material or or maybe you were just like you had said, maybe you were just shut down because you were so distracted by what was going on in sort of your peer group or life that you didn't have this opportunity. And to me, it's really interesting that coming and thinking about, I know in math class, like John and I advocate for this idea of context is so important, right? Context is what allows us and as students to relate to the mathematics, to actually understand the mathematics. But what I'm hearing from you is we're taking that a step further because a context that I share that only has meaning to me, but doesn't have meaning to you or to John, that's not a very helpful context. So to me, that means a lot to me. And really, I'm wondering, how do you help teachers who are listening to this saying like, wow, I need to listen to my students. Do you have any thoughts on how do we go about doing that? How do we help bring that cultural capital to life so that we can get students sharing this and we can actually use it in our classrooms for good in order to essentially amplify those students and amplify their voices? I think one of the most basic things to think about are the tasks that we select for the mathematics experience. An easy, a very easy way to get student voice is to sort of flip the experience. Instead of asking the question and seeking an answer, give the students the answer and let the students ask the question. So, you know, it's very simple. You could just say the answer is 12. Right. What's the question? And if you have 
30 students in your classroom, you could get 30 different questions. And out of those 30 questions, you can select the two or three questions that you will use for the foundation of the discussion. And that is a way to really listen to what are students asking? What are students interested in? What are their lenses of how they see the world? Like what topic even are their questions? What are they putting out there for it to be a source of discourse in the classroom? But we don't often do that. We pick the questions. We choose the questions out of the book, all of the odd ones, because the answer is in the back of the book. So not only do we already know the questions, but we already know the answers. And there's no room for student voice in that when we teach that way. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. For sure. And it reminds me of this context and thinking of like open questions like that, but also it goes to address like if you can do that well, you can kind of eliminate this like, why do we need to know math? You know, like, why does that even matter? Like how many teachers get that question, you know, every day? And when I get that question, it means to me, it's basically shouting out, where did I miss on that context? Or where did I not provide this idea that it was for some reason what we're learning here today has usefulness in the big idea of what we're trying to learn. Like we always hear the, why does this even matter? And, you know, I think many teachers actually think that when kids ask that question, it's actually like a bad thing because it's like, they're thinking like, oh, they're just one out of class or they're not. But why do you think that's actually the good thing? Like, why do you think that's not such a bad idea after all? Well, first of all, if you get kids wanting to even know why does this matter from an authentic point of view, why do we need to learn this? Like, that's such a really important question. And it's also something that when we're teaching, we should make space for that conversation to happen. Because having mathematics literacy, just like having print literacy, But having mathematics literacy is so empowering. It helps you make decisions about life from the basic thing of estimating when you're shopping or wake up in the morning and close your eyes and then try to put the toothpaste on your toothbrush and just see what happens. If you don't pay attention to what you're estimating from simple actions like that, you can have mess ups. So from everyday kinds of things to the most important kinds of things, when we look at the virus now and how many people are dying and in what communities and the rate at which people are getting sick and wanting to make sure that we have the data that we need to be able to talk about this in meaningful ways and to help people. So that's important. And we need to have those discussions as to why do I need to learn this? But it won't happen, I think, deeply if we don't have discussions around things that matter to students. 
So you know what? I'm not teaching at this very moment, but if I were teaching now and if I was teaching, say, either place value or fractions, you know where I would go to for a source of sort of the hook students? I would go to where they are, which would be YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, all of those places that keep up with things like how many views someone has, how many comments are written for them, because those are things that students are paying, that kids are paying attention to. Who's the most viewed person on TikTok or on Instagram? And let's look at those numbers. Let's look at the millions. What does it mean to say someone has 34 million followers? How many people is that? Are we talking about here? So using contexts that are meaningful in the lives of students, when they look at people that take Steph Curry, who plays basketball, where does he make his three-point shots on the floor? What's the geometry behind that? What are the stats behind that? Where is he most likely to make the most three-point shots? How far is he from the goal when he's making these three-point shots? So we could take it to sports. And there's so many places where there's opportunity to talk about, when am I ever going to use this? Why is it important? There are no shortage of context for that. I think you've hit it right on the head with the context and with making students feel like this is, you're not going through the motions, right? You kind of reference this idea of like, hey, we're going to do the odd questions in the text. It feels like uh, we're here. We just have to go through this motion. And But even just hearing you talk about these contexts, something else that I think is easy for us as educators to miss is just I can hear the passion in your voice when you're describing those contexts, right? And I think kids can see that. They can read that. And they know whether we're fully in and we're excited and we want to be doing the math too. It's easy for us as educators to kind of look at at our students and say, ah, oh, it's such a drag. They don't want to be there. They're not interested in the math. But if we're setting that precedent ourselves, meaning, hey, we're coming to school and we're turning the page and that's all we're doing. I mean, that is contagious. And I'm hearing about all this context and that relevant, how it can be relevant to our students' lives. And that's something that's really important to us in the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We use a three-part framework to get kids curious, and we're really excited to do that. But one of the things, one of the struggles that I know John and I both struggled with early on when we were trying to amplify those student voices as much as we could was a bit of a fear, you know, like as a teacher and John already mentioned, I was very similar to John, very, we'll call it traditional and traditional in our sense was, you know, math class was kind of a quiet place and orderly. Everyone was in rows. We copied a note and we did examples. And that was like our experience in most cases. And for a lot of teachers, they sort of have this fear of losing control or not knowing how to get those student voices started with this fear in the back of their mind of like noise in the class. Like what first steps or ideas might you recommend for maybe an educator who's like, yes, I know I need to do this. I know I need to get student voice in my classroom and I'm just not sure where to start. What sort of tips or suggestions might you have for uh, someone who's just trying to sort of open the door to this idea? So there are a couple of things that we can do. I think always thinking about what is, but let me say this, or let me ask you this. Tell me something that you do with your bank. Uh, pay bills. 
Okay. Pay bills. Name me two more. I check my balance and I feel sad. <laughs> All right. <laughs> check your balance. Okay. So bill pay, check balance. Uh, save my money. Put my, put, yeah, uh-huh. put your paychecks in there. Save your money. Save your money. Okay. And, you know, if I were in a room full of teachers, I would ask lots of teachers to respond and they may say things like, yeah, I write checks. I use my ATM card. Some people still go to the bank. They like to go to the drive-through or they go in, talk to the teller. They take out loans, you know, get their credit checked, open accounts, open a savings account, open a Christmas savings account, all of those things. Well, in the business world, those things are called touch points. And the idea is to have as many meaningful touch points as possible, because you don't need touch points that are not effective, to use those touch points so that you end up in the business world. They want to end up with satisfied customers. They also want to end up with customers with longevity, and they want customers who will tell other customers, hey, come to my bank. So free advertisement. I think we need to think about schooling in the same way. What are the touch points? What are the meaningful touch points where we can have satisfied learners, where we can have learners that want to stay in the game, and we can have learners that are motivating to other learners? So if you get that down even to the math class, what can we do in math class that are touch points? There are a lot of things. It's the tasks that we choose. It's the norms that we have. So I work with a team of colleagues, primarily Julie Dixon, Ed Nolan, and and we have lots of other colleagues that work with us. But the three of us together do a a lot of our primary work as a team. And one of the things that we talk about are norms, like establishing the norms early on in a classroom. So a touch point could be that in this classroom, this is how we do mathematics. We know that being able to justify and explain our answers is important. We know that being able to say, I don't understand something is valuable. So that's a touch point. What do we do with student errors? It can't be that when a student gets something wrong, it's just an X across it and a zero put on the paper. Like there has to be more value given to student errors. That's a touch point. How do you deal with students when they don't understand something? That's a touch point. How do you engage students with hands-on activities or virtual manipulatives or the kinds of things that will allow them to be physically active in the mathematics classroom? That's a touch point. So we have to consider what are the ways that we can engage students through these touch points that are going to be meaningful for students. And that is how we can keep students in the game. Whenever I teach like a subject like geometry, this is my favorite subject, by the way, even though this is a class I had the meltdown in. So funny. But I say to teachers, give me an envelope, or just a regular letter size envelope, and I can teach almost the entire plain geometry curriculum just with this envelope. And then I proceed to show them how that's done. And they see that it becomes a discourse between the teacher and the student. It's hands-on. It's the envelope and your writing tool and a ruler. 
And eventually we bring in a pair of scissors, but it's engaging. And it's also magical because when we start out the process, they don't believe that I can do what I just said I can do. Right. <laughs> now they're like daring you. That's like, right. <laughs> that, prove that it. That is exactly right. <laughs> prove it. Uh-huh. Right. I love the idea of the touch points. You know, when you think about that, and for me, that's a big takeaway, one of many from this conversations. But when you think about that and you break down all of the opportunities that we have in a math class, and I think, too, also something that is probably important, especially for educators who we were saying, if we're talking about this educator who wants to take this first step is thinking about all those touch points, but then maybe only focusing on a couple to start. You yes. Know? Mm-hmm. Like, so which ones am I going to focus on? And one that popped into my mind as you were speaking was even just that welcome at the door, that opportunity to build trust, to learn a little bit about every student and to build that relationship at the door. But then, all right, once you get that down, What's the next one? What's the next touch point that I'm going to try to work on? And to me, it just seems like if you tackle it one touch point at a time, the next thing you know, you can look back and go, wow, we're doing this throughout my entire program. And that to me is a really big takeaway. I really, really appreciate that. And uh, we're looking at the time. We don't want to take up too much more of your time tonight. The Math Moment Maker community obviously thanks you for spending that time with us. But before we do wrap things up, where can we learn more about your work? Well, I am very active with the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, which is the largest professional organization in the U.S. for teachers of mathematics. Currently, I am one of the associate editors for NCTM's newest journal, Mathematics Teacher, Learning and Teaching Mathematics, Pre-K-12. It takes the place of the previous three practitioner journals. So this is a Pre-K-12 opportunity for teachers of mathematics to share their voice with the mathematics education community. So I'm always recruiting authors and anyone who's listening, please look up MTLT with NCTM. We certainly appreciate any submissions that we receive for the journal. I also present at NCTM as many times as I am accepted for presentation. So currently I am accepted for NCTM 2021, which was going to be in St. Louis in April, but has now been, I guess we'll find out exactly what's going to happen with that. But I'm also active with the National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics. So in September 2021, I will be at NCSM, where I will deliver the K. Gilliland Equity Lecture Award. So I'm, I mean, Equity Award Lecture. So I'm excited about that. And I plan to be at NCTM 2021 in Atlanta in September as well. So that's NCTM. I'm always connected there. But I do have a set of books published by Solution Tree, Making Sense of Mathematics for Teaching with my colleagues, Julie Dixon and Ed Nolan and others. And so that's a place to find out more about those books. But we facilitate a professional development program through DNA Mathematics. So look up dnamath.com and you'll find more about our books. And we have some white papers there. And it's all about our voice in mathematics education. So I'm always trying to do something good for mathematics education. 
Awesome. Yeah. And it shows and uh, your work with NCTM is awesome. That's actually where I first saw you uh, a couple of years ago, NCTM. I was at one of your sessions on your book on from Solution Tree, Making Sense of Math uh, Teaching for Girls, K to 5. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was uh, watching that session as uh, it's been a kind of a priority for me to, you know, having girls myself and uh, mm-hmm. uh, teaching girls, but a uh, super important topic. But we want to thank you uh, for joining us here on the podcast and uh, really enjoyed this conversation as I'm sure all the listeners right now have also are nodding their heads saying they also enjoyed it. But thanks so much for joining us and we hope you have a lovely evening. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to welcome Thomasenia onto the show. I hope that you had a bunch of awesome nuggets to take with you. One of the themes that I'm hearing is just this idea of building that psychological safety in the classroom, building that community, building that classroom culture. And really, it does revolve around this idea of students having voice in the classroom. For sure. For sure. I'm the super, super... Glad we've had this conversation with Tomasini. And uh, hey, in order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as uh, we produce them and they come out each Monday morning, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach an even wider audience by leaving us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can go ahead and tweet us at Make Math Moments on Twitter Instagram, and you can even find us on Facebook. Show notes and links to resources from this episode, plus full transcripts, can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 130. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 130. We release a new episode every Monday morning, so keep an eye open for our next one. Well, Math Moment Makers, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And a high five for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent, principal, Getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook 
after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.